Welcome to Bite at a Time Books, where we read you your favorite classics one bite at a time. My name is Brie Carlisle, and I love to read and wanted to share my passion with listeners like you. If you want to know what's coming next and vote on upcoming books, sign up for our newsletter at biteatatimebooks.com. You'll also find our new t-shirts in the shop, including podcast shirts and quote shirts from your favorite classic novels. Be sure to follow my show on your favorite podcast platform so you get all the new episodes. You can find most of our links in the show notes. But also our website, biteatatimebooks.com, includes all of the links for our show, including to our Patreon to support the show, and YouTube, where we have special behind-the-narration of the episodes. We're part of the Bite at a Time Books Productions Network. If you'd also like to hear what inspired your favorite classic authors to write their novels— and what was going on in the world at the time, check out the Bite at a Time books behind the story podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note, while we try to keep the text as close to the original as possible, some words have been changed to honor the marginalized communities who've identified the words as harmful and to stay in alignment with Bite at a Time books brand values. Today we'll be concluding Little Men by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter 21. Thanksgiving. This yearly festival was always kept at Plumfield, in the good old-fashioned way, and nothing was allowed to interfere with it. For days beforehand, the little girls helped Asia and Mrs. Joe in storeroom and kitchen, making pies and puddings, sorting fruit, dusting dishes, and being very busy and immensely important— the boys hovered on the outskirts of the forbidden ground, sniffing the savory odors, peeping in at the mysterious performances, and occasionally being permitted to taste some delicacy in the process of preparation. Something more than usual seemed to be on foot this year, for the girls were as busy upstairs as down. So were the boys in schoolroom and barn, and a general air of bustle pervaded the house. There was a great hunting up of old ribbons and finery, much cutting and pasting of gold paper, and the most remarkable quantity of straw, gray cotton, flannel, and big black beads, used by Franz and Mrs. Joe. Ned hammered at strange machines in the workshop. Demi and Tommy went about murmuring to themselves as if learning something. A fearful racket was heard in Emile's room at intervals, and peals of laughter from the nursery when Rob and Teddy were sent for and hidden from sight whole hours at a time. But the thing that puzzled Mr. Bear the most was what became of Rob's big pumpkin. It had been born in triumph to the kitchen, where a dozen gold-tinted pies soon after appeared. It would not have taken more than a quarter of the mammoth vegetable to make them. Yet, where was the rest? It disappeared, and Rob never seemed to care, only chuckled when it was mentioned and told his father to wait and see for the fun of the whole thing was to surprise Father Bear at the end and not let him know a bit about what was to happen. He obediently shut eyes, ears, and mouth and went about trying not to see what was in plain sight, not to hear the telltale signs that filled the air, not to understand any of the perfectly transparent mysteries going on all about him. Being a German, he loved these simple domestic festivals and encouraged them with all his heart for they made home so pleasant that the boys did not care to go elsewhere for fun. When at last the day came, the boys went off for a long walk, that they might have good appetites for dinner, as if they ever needed them. 
The girls remained at home to set the table and give last touches to various affairs which filled their busy little souls with anxiety. The schoolroom had been shut up since the night before, and Mr. Bear was forbidden to enter it on pain of a beating from Teddy, who guarded the door like a small dragon, though he was dying to tell about it, and nothing but his father's heroic self-denial in not listening kept him from betraying a grand secret. "'It's all done, and it's perfectly splendid,' cried Nan, coming out at last with an air of triumph. "'The you-know goes beautifully, and Silas knows just what to do now,' added Daisy, skipping with delight at some unspeakable success. "'I'm blessed if it ain't the cutest thing I ever see, them critters in particular,' said Silas, who had been let into the secret, went off laughing like a great boy. "'They're coming,' I hear a meal roaring land lubbers lying down below, so we must run and dress, cried Nan, and upstairs they scampered in a great hurry. The boys came trooping home with appetites that would have made the big turkey tremble if it had not been past all fear. They also retired to dress, and for half an hour there was a washing, brushing, and prinking that would have done any tidy woman's heart good to see. When the bell rang, a troop of fresh-faced lads with shiny hair clean collars and Sunday jackets on filed into the dining room, where Mrs. Joe, in her one black silk with a knot of her favorite white chrysanthemums in her bosom, sat at the head of the table looking splendid, as the boy said, whenever she got herself up. Daisy and Nan were as gay as a posy bed in their new winter dresses, with bright sashes and hair ribbons. Teddy was gorgeous to behold in a crimson merino blouse, and his best button boots, which absorbed and distracted him as much as Mr. Toot's wristbands did on one occasion. As Mr. and Mrs. Bear glanced at each other down the long table, with those rows of happy faces on either side, they had a little thanksgiving all to themselves, and without a word, for one heart said to the other, Our work has prospered. Let us be grateful and go on. The clatter of knives and forks prevented much conversation for a few minutes, and Mary Ann, with an amazing pink bow in her hair, flew round briskly, handing plates and ladling out gravy. Nearly everyone had contributed to the feast, so the dinner was a peculiarly interesting one to the eaters of it, who beguiled the pauses by remarks on their own productions. "'If these are not good potatoes, I never saw any,' observed Jack as he received his fourth big mealy one. "'Some of my herbs are in the stuffing of the turkey.' That's why it's so nice, said Nan, taking a mouthful with intense satisfaction. My ducks are prime anyway. Asia said she never cooked such fat ones, added Tommy. Well, our carrots are beautiful, ain't they? And our parsnips will be ever so good when we dig them, put in Dick. And Dolly murmured his assent from behind the bone he was picking. I helped make the pies with my pumpkin, called out Robbie with a laugh, which he stopped by retiring into his mug. I picked some of the apples that the cider is made of, said Demi. I raked the cranberries for the sauce, cried Nat. I got the nuts, added Dan. And so it went all round the table. Who made up Thanksgiving? asked Rob. For being lately promoted to jacket and trousers, he felt a new and manly interest in the institutions of his country. See who can answer that question and Mr. Bear nodded to one or two of his best history boys. I know, said Demi. The pilgrims made it. What for? asked Rob, without waiting to learn who the pilgrims were. 
I forget. And Demi subsided. I believe it was because they were starved once. And so when they had a good harvest, they said, we'll thank God for it. And they had a day and called it Thanksgiving, said Dan, who liked the story of the brave men who suffered so nobly for their faith. Good. I didn't think you would remember anything but natural history. And Mr. Bear tapped gently on the table as applause for his pupil. Dan looked pleased. And Mrs. Joe said to her son, Now do you understand it, Robbie? No, I don't. I thought pilgrims were a sort of big bird that lived on rocks, and I saw pictures of them in Demi's book. He means penguins. Oh, isn't he a little goosey? And Demi laid back in his chair and laughed aloud. Don't laugh at him, but tell him all about it if you can, said Mr. Bear, consoling Rob with more cranberry sauce for the general smile that went round the table at his mistake. Well, I will. And after a pause to collect his ideas, Demi delivered the following sketch of the Pilgrim Fathers, which would have made even those grave gentlemen smile if they could have heard it. You see, Rob... Some of the people in England didn't like the king or something, so they got into ships and sailed away to this country. It was all full of Indians and bears and wild creatures, and they lived in forts and had a dreadful time. The bears? asked Robbie with interest. No, the pilgrims, because the Indians troubled them. They hadn't enough to eat, and they went to church with guns, and ever so many died, and they got out of the ships on a rock, and it's called Plymouth Rock and Aunt Jo saw it and touched it. The pilgrims killed all the Indians and got rich, and hung the witches and were very good, and some of the greatest great-grandpas came in ships. One was the Mayflower, and they made Thanksgiving, and we have it always, and I like it. Some more turkey, please. I think Demi will be a historian. There's such order and clearness in his account of events. And Uncle Fritz's eyes laughed at Aunt Joe as he helped the descendant of the pilgrims to his third bit of turkey. I thought you must eat as much as ever you could on Thanksgiving, but Franz says you mustn't even then. And Stuffy looked as if he had received bad news. Franz is right, so mind your knife and fork and be moderate, or else you won't be able to help in the surprise by and by, said Mrs. Joe. I'll be careful, but everybody does eat lots. And I like it better than being moderate, said Stuffy, who leaned to the popular belief that Thanksgiving must be kept by coming as near apoplexy as possible and escaping with merely a fit of indigestion or a headache. Now, my pilgrims, amuse yourselves quietly till tea time, for you'll have enough excitement this evening, said Mrs. Joe, as they rose from the table after a protracted sitting, finished by drinking everyone's health in cider. I think I'll take the whole flock for a drive. It is so pleasant. Then you can rest, my dear, or you'll be worn out this evening, added Mr. Bear. And as soon as coats and hats could be put on, the great omnibus was packed full and away they went for a long gay drive, leaving Mrs. Joe to rest and finish sundry small affairs in peace. An early and light tea was followed by more brushing of hair and washing of hands, and the flock waited impatiently for the company to come. Only the family was expected, for these small revels were strictly domestic, and such being the case, sorrow was not allowed to sadden the present festival. All came. Mr. and Mrs. March with Aunt Meg, 
so sweet and lovely in spite of her black dress and the little widow's cap that encircled her tranquil face. Uncle Teddy and Aunt Amy with the princess looking more fairy-like than ever, and a sky-blue gown and a great bouquet of hothouse flowers, which she divided among the boys, sticking one in each buttonhole, making them feel peculiarly elegant and festive. One strange face appeared, and Uncle Teddy led the unknown gentleman up to the bears, saying, "'This is Mr. Hyde.' He has been inquiring about Dan, and I ventured to bring him tonight, that he might see how much the boy has improved. The bears received him cordially, for Dan's sake, pleased that the lad had been remembered. But after a few minutes' chat, they were glad to know Mr. Hyde for his own sake. So genial, simple, and interesting was he. It was pleasant to see the boy's face light up when he caught sight of his friend, Pleasanter still to see Mr. Hyde's surprise and satisfaction in Dan's improved manners and appearance, and pleasantest of all to watch the two sitting talking in a corner, forgetting the differences of age, culture, and position, in the one subject which interested both. As man and boy compared notes and told the story of their summer life. The performance must begin soon or the actors will go to sleep, said Mrs. Joe, when the first greetings were over. So everyone went into the schoolroom and took seats before a curtain made of two bed covers. The children had already vanished, but stifled laughter and funny little exclamations from behind the curtain betrayed their whereabouts. The entertainment began with a spirited exhibition of gymnastics led by Franz. The six elder lads in blue trousers and red shirts made a fine display of muscle with dumbbells, clubs, and weights, keeping time to the music of the piano played by Mrs. Joe behind the scenes. Dan was so energetic in this exercise that there was some danger of us knocking down his neighbors, like so many ninepins, or sending his beanbags whizzing among the audience, for he was excited by Mr. Hyde's presence, and a burning desire to do honor to his teachers. A fine, strong lad. If I go on my trip to South America in a year or two, I shall be tempted to ask you to lend him to me, Mr. Bear, said Mr. Hyde, whose interest in Dan was much increased by the report he had just heard of him. You shall have him and welcome, though we shall miss our young Hercules very much. It would do him a world of good, and I'm sure he would serve his friend faithfully. Dan heard both question and answer, and his heart leapt with joy at the thought of traveling in a new country with Mr. Hyde, and swelled with gratitude for the kindly commendation which rewarded his efforts to be all these friends desired to see him. After the gymnastics, Demi and Tommy spoke the old-school dialogue, Money makes the mare go. Demi did very well, but Tommy was capital as the old farmer, for he imitated Silas in a way that convulsed the audience and caused Silas himself to laugh so hard that Asia had to slap him on the back as they stood in the hall enjoying the fun immensely. Then Emil, who had got his breath by this time, gave them a stee song in costume with a great deal about stormy winds, lee shores, and a rousing chorus of luff boys love which made the room ring, after which Ned performed a funny Chinese dance and hopped about like a large frog in a pagoda hat. As this was the only public exhibition ever held at Plumfield, a few exercises in lightning arithmetic, spelling, and reading were given. Jack quite amazed the public by his rapid calculations on the blackboard. Tommy won in the spelling match, and Demi read a little French fable so well that Uncle Teddy was charmed. Where are the other children? asked everyone as the curtain fell and none of the little ones appeared. Oh, that is the surprise. It's so lovely, I pity you because you don't know it, 
said Demi, who had gone to get his mother's kiss, and stayed by her to explain the mystery when it should be revealed. Goldilocks had been carried off by Aunt Jo, to the great amazement of her papa, who quite outdid Mr. Bear in acting wonder, suspense, and wild impatience, to know what was going to happen. At last... After much rustling, hammering, and very audible directions from the stage manager, the curtain rose to soft music, and Bess was discovered sitting on a stool beside a brown paper fireplace. The dear little Cinderella was never seen, for the gray gown was very ragged, the tiny shoes all worn, the face so pretty under the bright hair, and the attitude so dejected it brought tears as well as smiles to the fond eyes looking at the baby actress, she sat quite still, till a voice whispered, Now, then she sighed a funny little sigh and said, Oh, I wish I could go to the ball. So naturally that her father clapped frantically and her mother called out, Little darling. These highly improper expressions of feeling caused Cinderella to forget herself and shake her head at them saying reprovingly, You mustn't peek to me. Silence instantly prevailed, and three taps were heard on the wall. Cinderella looked alarmed, but before she could remember to say, what is that, the back of the brown paper fireplace opened like a door, and with some difficulty, the fairy godmother got herself and her pointed hat through. It was Nan, in a red cloak, a cap, and a wand, which she waved as she said decidedly, "'You shall go to the ball, my dear.' "'Now you must pull and show my pretty dress,' returned Cinderella, tugging at her brown gown." No, no, you must say, how can I go in my rags? Said the godmother in her own voice. Oh, yes, so I must. And the princess said it, quite undisturbed by her forgetfulness. I change your rags into a splendid dress because you are good, said the godmother in her stage tones. And deliberately unbuttoning the brown pinafore, she displayed a gorgeous sight. The little princess really was pretty enough to turn the heads of any number of small princes for her mama had dressed her like a tiny court lady, in a rosy silk train with satin underskirt and bits of bouquets here and there, quite lovely to behold. The godmother put a crown with pink and white feathers drooping from it on her head and gave her a pair of silver paper slippers which she put on and then stood up, lifting her skirts to show them to the audience, saying with pride, "'My last ones, ain't they pity?' She was so charmed with them that she was with difficulty recalled to her part and made to say, But I have no toach, Dodmother. Behold it. And Nan waved her wand with such a flourish that she nearly knocked off the crown of the princess. Then appeared the grand triumph of the piece. First, a rope was seen to flap on the floor to tighten with a twitch as Emile's voice was heard to say, Heave ahoy. And Silas's gruff one to reply, Steady now, steady. A shout of laughter followed, for four large gray rats appeared, rather shaky as to their legs, and queer as to their tails, but quite fine about the head or black beads shown in the most lifelike manner. They drew, or were intended to appear as if they did, a magnificent coach made of half the mammoth pumpkin, mounted on the wheels of Teddy's wagon, painted yellow to match the gay carriage. Perched on a seat in front sat a jolly little coachman in a white cotton wool wig, cocked hat, scarlet breeches, and laced coat, who cracked a long whip and jerked the red reins so energetically that the gray steeds reared finely. It was Teddy, 
and he beamed upon the company so affably that they gave him a round all to himself. And Uncle Lori said, If I could find as sober a coachman as that one, I would engage him on the spot. The coach stopped. The godmother lifted in the princess, and she was trundled away in state, kissing her hand to the public with her glass shoes sticking up in front, and her pink train sweeping the ground behind. For elegant as the coach was, I regret to say that her highness was rather a tight fit. The next scene was the ball. And here, Nan and Daisy appeared as gay as peacocks in all sorts of finery. Nan was especially good as the proud sister, and crushed many imaginary ladies as she swept about the palace hall. The prince, in solitary state upon a somewhat unsteady throne, sat gazing about him from under an imposing crown, as he played with his sword and admired the rosettes in his shoes. When Cinderella came in, he jumped up and exclaimed with more warmth and elegance, "'My gracious, who is that?' and immediately led the lady out to dance, while the sisters scowled and turned up their noses in the corner. The stately jig executed by the little couple was very pretty, for the childish faces were so earnest, the costumes so gay, and the steps so peculiar that they looked like the dainty quaint figures painted on a Watteau fan. The princess's train was very much in her way, and the sword of Prince Rob nearly tripped him up several times. But they overcame these obstacles remarkably well and finished the dance with much grace and spirit, considering that neither knew what the other was about. "'Drop your shoe,' whispered Mrs. Joe's voice as the lady was about to sit down. "'Oh, I forgot!' And taking off one of the silvery slippers, Cinderella planted it carefully in the middle of the stage, said to Rob, "'Now you must try and patch me,' and ran away." while the prince, picking up the shoe, obediently trotted after her. The third scene, as everybody knows, is where the herald comes to try on the shoe. Teddy, still in his coachman's dress, came in blowing a tin fish horn melodiously, and the proud sisters each tried to put on the slipper. Nan insisted on playing cut off her toe with a carving knife, and performed that operation so well that the herald was alarmed and begged her to be really careful. Cinderella then was called and came in with the pinafore half on, slipped her foot into the slipper, and announced with satisfaction, I am the princess. Daisy wept and begged pardon, but Nan, who liked tragedy, improved upon the story, and fell in a fainting fit upon the floor, where she remained comfortably enjoying the rest of the play. It was not long, for the prince ran in, dropped upon his knees, and kissed the hand of Goldilocks with great ardor, while the herald blew a blast that nearly deafened the audience. The curtain had no chance to fall, for the princess ran off the stage to her father, crying, Didn't I do well? While the prince and herald had a fencing match with a tin horn and wooden sword. It was beautiful, said everyone, and when the raptures had a little subsided, Nat came out with his violin in hand. Hush, hush, cried all the children, and silence followed. For something in the boy's bashful manner and appealing eyes made everyone listen kindly. The bears thought he would play some of the old airs he knew so well, but to their surprise, they heard a new and lovely melody, so softly, sweetly played, that they could hardly believe it could be Nat. It was one of those songs without words that touch the heart, and sing of all the tender, homelike hopes and joys, soothing and cheering those who listened to its simple music. Aunt Meg leaned her head on Demi's shoulder, 
Grandmother wiped her eyes, and Mrs. Joe looked up at Mr. Lorry, saying in a choky whisper, "'You compose that.' "'I wanted your boy to do you honor and thank you in his own way,' answered Lorry, leaning down to answer her. When Nat made his bow and was about to go, he was called back by many hands and had to play again. He did so with such a happy face that it was good to see him.' for he did his best and gave them the gay old tunes that set the feet to dancing and made quietude impossible. "'Clear the floor!' cried Emile. And in a minute, the chairs were pushed back. The older people put safely in corners, and the children gathered on the stage. "'Show your manners!' cried Emile. And the boys pranced up to the ladies, old and young, with polite invitations to tread the mazie, as dear Dick Swiveller has it, small lads nearly came to blows for the princess, but she chose Dick like a kind little gentlewoman as she was, and let him lead her proudly to her place. Mrs. Joe was not allowed to decline, and Aunt Amy filled Dan with unspeakable delight by refusing Franz and taking him. Of course, Nan and Tommy, Nat and Daisy paired off, while Uncle Teddy went and got Asia, who was longing to jig it, and felt much elated by the honor done her. Silas and Marianne had a private dance in the hall, and for half an hour, Plumfield was at its merriest. The party wound up with a grand promenade of all the young folks, headed by the pumpkin coach with the princess and driver inside, and the rats in a wildly frisky state. While the children enjoyed the final frolic, the elders sat in the parlor looking on as they talked together of the little people with interest of parents and friends. "'What are you thinking of, all by yourself, with such a happy face, Sister Joe? asked Lori, sitting down beside her on the sofa. "'My summer's work, Teddy, and amusing myself by imagining the future of my boys,' she answered, smiling as she made room for him. "'They're all to be poets, painters, and statesmen, famous soldiers, or at least merchant princes, I suppose. "'No, I'm not as aspiring as I once was,' and I shall be satisfied if they are honest men. But I will confess that I do expect a little glory and a career for some of them. Demi is not a common child, and I think he will blossom into something good and great in the best sense of the word. The others will do well, I hope, especially my last two boys. For after hearing Nat play tonight, I really think he has genius. Too soon to say. Talent he certainly has, and there's no doubt that the boy can soon earn his bread by the work he loves. Build him up for another year or so, and then I'll take him off your hands and launch him properly. That is such a pleasant prospect for poor Nat, who came to me six months ago so friendless and forlorn. Dan's future is already plain to me. Mr. Hyde will want him soon, and I mean to give him a brave and faithful little servant. Dan is one who can serve well if the wages are love and confidence, and he has the energy to carve out his own future in his own way. Yes, I'm very happy over our success with these boys. One so weak and one so wild. Both so much better now and so full of promise. What magic did you use, Joe? I only loved them and let them see it. Fritz did the rest. Dear soul, you look as if only loving had been rather hard work sometimes, said Lori, stroking her thin cheek with a look of more tender admiration than he'd ever given her as a girl. I'm a faded old woman but I'm a very happy one, so don't pity me, Teddy. And she glanced about the room with eyes full of a sincere content. Yes, your plan seems to work better and better every year, he said, with an emphatic nod of approval toward the cheery scene before him. 
How can it fail to work well when I have so much help from you all? Answered Mrs. Joe, looking gratefully at her most generous patron. It is the best joke of the family. This school of yours and its success. So unlike the future we planned for you, and yet so suited you after all. It was a regular inspiration, Joe, said Laurie, dodging her thanks as usual. Ah, uh-huh, but you laughed at it in the beginning, and still make all manner of fun of me and my inspirations. Didn't you predict that having girls with the boys would be a dead failure? Now see how well it works. She pointed to the happy group of lads and lassies dancing, singing and chattering together with every sign of kindly good fellowship. I give in, and when my Goldilocks is old enough, I'll send her to you. Can I say more than that? I shall be so proud to have your little treasure trusted to me. But really, Teddy, the effect of these girls has been excellent. I know you will laugh at me, but I don't mind. I'm used to it. So I'll tell you that one of my favorite fancies is to look at my family as a small world, to watch the progress of my little men, and lately to see how well the influence of my little women works upon them. Daisy is the domestic element, and they all feel the charm of her quiet, womanly ways. Nan is the restless, energetic, strong-minded one. They admire her courage and give her a fair chance to work out her will, seeing that she has sympathy as well as strength and the power to do much in their small world. Your Bess is the lady full of natural refinement, grace, and beauty. She polishes them unconsciously and fills her place as any lovely woman may, using her gentle influence to lift and hold them above the coarse, rough things of life and keep them gentlemen in the best sense of the fine old word. It is not always the ladies who do that best, Joe. It is sometimes the strong, brave woman who stirs up the boy and makes a man of him. And Laurie bowed to her with a significant laugh. No, I think the graceful woman, whom the boy you allude to marry, has done more for him than the wild nan of his youth. Or better still, the wise motherly woman who watched over him, as Daisy watches over Demi, did more to make him what he is. And Joe turned toward her mother, who sat a little apart with Meg, looking so full of the sweet dignity and beauty of old age that Laurie gave her a glance of leal respect and love as he replied in serious earnest. All three did much for him, and I can understand how well these little girls will help your lads. Not more than the lads help them. It is mutual, I assure you. Nat does much for Daisy with his music. Dan can manage Nan better than any of us. And Demi teaches your Goldilocks so easily and well that Fritz calls them Roger Asham and Lady Jane Grey. Dear me, if men and women would only trust, understand, and help one another as my children do, what a capital place the world would be. And Mrs. Joe's eyes grew absent, as if she was looking at a new and charming state of society in which people lived as happily and innocently as her flock at Plumfield. You are doing your best to help on the good time, my dear. Continue to believe in it, to work for it, and to prove its possibility by the success of her small experiment said Mr. March, pausing as he passed to say an encouraging word, for the good man never lost his faith in humanity, and still hoped to see peace, goodwill, and happiness reign upon the earth. I'm not so ambitious as that, father. I only want to give these children a home in which they can be taught a few simple things which will help to make life less hard to them when they go out to fight their battles in the world. Honesty, courage, industry, faith in God— their fellow creatures, and themselves. That is all I try for. That is everything. 
give them these helps and let them go to work out their life as men and women, and whatever their success or failure is, I think they will remember and bless your efforts, my good son and daughter. The professor adjoined them, and as Mr. March spoke, he gave a hand to each and left them with a look that was a blessing. As Joe and her husband stood together for a moment talking quietly and feeling that their summer work had been well done if father approved, Mr. Laurie slipped into the hall, said a word to the children, and all of a sudden the whole flock pranced into the room, joined hands, and danced about father and mother bear, singing blithely, Summer days are over. Summer work is done. Harvests have been gathered gaily one by one. Now the feast is eaten. Finished is the play. But one right remains for our Thanksgiving day. Best of all the harvest in the dear God's sight are the happy children in the home tonight. And we come to offer thanks where thanks are due, with grateful hearts and voices, Father, Mother, unto you. With the last words, the circle narrowed, till the good professor and his wife were taken prisoner by many arms, and half hidden by the bouquet of laughing young faces which surrounded them, proving that one plant had taken root and blossomed beautifully in all the little gardens. For love is a flower that grows in any soil, works its sweet miracles undaunted by autumn frost or winter snow, blooming fair and fragrant all the year, and blessing those who give and those who receive. Thank you for joining Bite at a Time Books today, while we read a bite of one of your favorite classics. Again, my name is Brie Carlisle, and I hope you come back tomorrow for the first bite of Joe's Boys. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at biteatatimebooks.com and check out the shop. You can check out the show notes or our website, biteatatimebooks.com, for the rest of the links for our show. We'd love to hear from you on social media as well.